I also once went to an event at the Taj Sheba run by the French Embassy where we had rather incongruously um, Chablis and uh, Beaujolais and uh, frogs' legs and snails in the middle of Yemen in the middle of summer. Very, very curious. Hello. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Last fortnight's podcast episode was cool to record, edit and produce. I had great fun editing the sound effects and the idea of having a parody commercial break in the middle was something I'd wanted to do for ages. Coupled with that, the topic was one I could really get my teeth into and very much inform, educate, entertain, as my tagline uh, isn't. Sometimes it's the little things that appeal to me, like the time I created the fight scene sound effects for episode 30, or some of the descriptions I used for politicians in episode 26. Although it usually takes me a great deal of mental effort and short-term conquest of my executive dysfunction, I do really enjoy doing my pods, and it's much more me than blog posts. Partly because I can imbue more of my personality into them, and partly because I don't have to edit so many pictures for them. The internet, however, did not follow suit in its cool and fun theme. I had a number of problems getting the episode out. Firstly, I launched it late in lunchtime on the Friday afternoon, but noticed that it didn't push to LinkedIn because my podcast hosting site, Libsyn, had logged me out. Not a problem, I thought. All I need to do is reconnect and then republish to LinkedIn alone. Listener, if only it had been that simple. Turns out, if I untick an option and republish, it assumes everything I did previously was invalid, and it removes it from all of the other sites it publishes to. I did not realise this, so when I only republished to LinkedIn, it deleted it from all of the other places, like uh, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, and whatever Google Play is now. And I didn't notice until... until Rude Loves Travel tweeted me at somewhere close to midnight and said, I was going to listen to your podcast, but it's not in my app. Whoops. So I then ticked all the options and effectively published it for a third time. And... uh, Dumbleweed. Nothing. Nada. Constant refreshing of my own podcast app revealed no new episode. I did some research and found it was on Spotify at least, but not on Apple. Thought I'd go to sleep and see what happened when I woke up. So, 10am Saturday morning, still not in my podcast app. Tweeted a couple of friends to see if it was in their apps yet, except they were asleep, and they got back to me an hour later. Literally, as me and Rue were tweeting, she told me that it had finally appeared in her app. And then I got a message from Buri, who said she'd been listening to it last night and wondered what the problem was. Finally, it appeared in the podcast app I use just after 11am, and the notification told me it had gone live 12 hours ago. I feel like I've been gaslit by my own podcast app. For those of you listening who do have podcasts or newsletters or other things that you push out to people or, or services, do you subscribe to it yourself? 
I always felt it was almost like artificially increasing the numbers and that I'd be a fake follower, given that I wouldn't listen or even download. But here it might have meant I'd have noticed sooner that the pod wasn't in the app. That said, though, the first launch would have worked and it wouldn't have occurred to me to look after the second. Anyway, lessons learned. Tick all the boxes. Literally. I'm only telling you this as a public information message, so you don't make the same mistakes as I do. I am not a role model. Which probably makes a better, or at least more accurate, tagline for me than inform, educate, entertain. Mind you, as always, I do these things so you don't have to. So, the subject of this episode is alcohol around the world that isn't beer. It's possible that by the time you listen to it, I'll have come up with a more snappy title. It was originally going to be the subject of Podcast 32, the one immediately following my episode on beer, but technology fails happened, and then I got distracted. Because of course I did. Eh. The reason for doing the pod was because a couple of contribs I got for the beer episode also included thoughts on other alcohol, so I figured it was worth doing an episode on. In addition, I knew of a couple of people who had some very interesting times with spirits in distant parts of the world that would make good tales. By way of an introduction, here's Kate Frankie from This Could Lead to Anywhere, giving a brief overview of some of her experiences. Pay attention, we may well be referring to this later. I've definitely partaken in um, a few drinks now and then, and some pretty cool stories have come out of them actually that have nothing to do with hangovers or being too drunk, which is nice. There was the first time that I had Pisco Sours in um, Peru and I was like, why are people putting egg in this? This is not okay. That was weird. And I don't think I would ever necessarily have that kind of thing again, but definitely it was like something to experience. What other things I've had absence before, but only once and I don't think I would ever have that again. It just wasn't very exciting and was kind of gross as well. Are we classing carver as a kind of alcohol? No. Other ones. Oh, I had like really good vodka in a few places. So um, Poland was like really good for, I haven't been to Russia, but I would actually really like to have proper high quality vodka and sip it like the way that like they do. And I think they have it ice cold as well, like straight out of the freezer, but that would be really cool in future. But the ones in uh, Poland, uh, particularly different kinds of flavours, they were really nice. Oh, tequila and mezcal. Um, so in, there was a really cool story, actually. There was a place, we were in Antigua in Guatemala, and there was this place that we heard of called Bow's Dive, uh, which was this, like, not on a map, like, no kind of clues to it on the outside of the building, um, but it was a bar, and you had to go through this, like, half door. You almost, like, crawled through. And they didn't necessarily like tourists going in because... They would get like a bunch of tourists going in and sharing like one mezcal between them. And it was like a three mezcal drink per person minimum that you could have. So we had like three shots of mezcal and you couldn't like be three people and buy just one lot of like three um, so we kind of spent a few hours there, but it was just really cool people um, drank it like slowly. It was like pretty good standard stuff. I think I probably had a little bit of a headache the next morning, but it was just really cool. Uh, he was very kind of uh, my rules, my place. But that was like one of my memories of having a really cool drink in a cool place. 
People who know me, certainly people who follow me on Twitter, are fully aware of my liking of beer, but it's notable that I very rarely mention any other types of alcohol. This is primarily because I'm very much a beer person. I will drink other things. I'm a fan of whiskey, but I don't have the palate to determine what it is that I'm drinking. So at the moment, my whiskey notes are, is it smoky? Is it peaty? Is it smooth? Does it burn my throat as it goes down? In my younger days, I was a fan of flavoured vodkas. And even now, I'm quite fond of liqueurs like Midori, melon, Frangelico, hazelnut, creme de menthe, because nothing sets you up for a good evening than alcoholic mouthwash, and stuff like Baileys, which is the drink that seems to get me the least drunk. I seem to be able to get through a lot of it without feeling any effects. The exact opposite occurs with white wine. Half a bottle of that and I'm, well, a very cheap date, apparently. Not that I go on dates, obviously. It's Ariel Awareness Week. Woohoo! That said, I have had some, shall we say, interesting alcohols on my travels. The most memorable was something I had in the mountainous foothills of the Sichuan province of China. This was many, many years ago, when I was young and precocious. I mean, mid-twenties, but I felt young and precocious. I certainly wasn't the well-rounded and socially anxious, but at least self-aware person that I am now. I was on a group tour with 15 other people and the tour leader, an Australian called Jane. While that sounds surprising, well, it was China, a country that's quite tricky to navigate solo because of all the admin required in booking tickets, etc. And in any case, it was quite a casual tour. All we were required to do together was travel and sleep in the accommodation. Everything else we did, from trips to eating, was entirely optional, so there was a lot of flexibility and leeway. Anyway, the tour spent a week and a bit in Sichuan province, which, if you don't know, is geographically kind of Midwest China, but culturally and topographically very close to Tibet rather than the bulk of the rest of the country. We spent one night camping in the mountains, somewhere close to the town of Songpan, being led up trails and down valleys by a couple of local herders. We'd had food, a noodle-based vegetable soup, around the campfire, but as the night went on and darkness fell, there were fewer of us and the chat became a little weirder and driven by alcohol. Now, the group was made up of several different nationalities and personalities, including an early 50s technologically advanced and very fit Swedish couple, who in a way I kind of aspire to. But they'd called it a night by the time the hard liquors came out. Among the rest of the party were a couple of Kiwi girls, an Irishman, a couple of Englishmen, and at least one Swiss woman whose attitude to alcohol was, bring it on. This is important to note because national stereotypes. So, as the beer ran out, the herder guides first gave us some barley wine. This was quite a nice grape-flavoured spirit that went down pretty well with the party. Of course, that was the sales pitch, get us hooked in for the second round. Once we'd finished off the grape spirit, the herders brought out their secret weapon. A bottle of Sprite. Containing a liquid that looked like Sprite. Listeners, it was not Sprite. I don't know what it was. Possibly rocket fuel. I refused to believe that it was in any way legal, or in fact healthy. We knew it was bad when the Swiss lady took one sip and refused to touch it for the rest of the night. The rest of us, including the Kiwis and those hailing from the British Isles, did manage to finish the bottle. We did so very slowly, passing the bottle in a circle like in some kind of ritualistic ceremony, having realised the best way of drinking it was to keep the bottle at arm's length at all times until you were ready to drink, Hold your nose as you brought the bottle to your mouth, take short, quick sips, barely more than a mouthful, and then swallow quickly without tasting it. Those of us who were still able to, having not had passed out on the floor, 
and went to bed around 11pm that night. It felt much, much later. Four of the party, including three of the drinkers, headed back to Songpan the next morning to the hotel we were registered at as they weren't feeling too great. The fourth person had not been drinking but was suffering from the altitude. Maybe it was the same for the other three too. Altitude is always dangerous. You'd have thought this would have been a memory stored in a proper place and brought out as a regular reminder why unlisted, unlabeled, clear alcohol is never a good thing. However, as previously noted, I don't have a good memory. I'm not saying I travel around the world to sample illicit moonshine, but China wasn't the only place that I came upon it, accidentally. I also found it in, of all places, Bangladesh, a country not noted for its alcohol, given that it's 90% Islamic. That said, at one point on the bus from Dakar to Silhet, I saw a huge billboard advert for Tiger Beer. I never saw it on sale anywhere, not even in the restaurants in Silhet, the city from where just over 90% of all owners of Indian restaurants in the UK hail from. So no, you don't get a beer with your curry there. Rather, all my drinks were water, a juice, or the occasional lassi, the yoghurt-based drink very popular in South Asia. And tea, uncharacteristically for me. Hmm. I did a blog post about Bangladesh, but maybe I should do a full-on podcast about it. Anyway, however, I was walking through the suburbs of Silhet, heading for one of the large tea plantations that surround the city. As it had been suggested, these were great places to wander to get out of the polluted streets and see some of the local scenery, as well as sample the local brew. This being Bangladesh, a country where pretty much every person comes up to you and asks you for a selfie, and that's a lot of people. It came as no real surprise when a chap on a motor scooter came up from behind me, beeps me, and pulls over to have a chat. He asks me where I'm going, and before you know it, I'm riding on the back of his moto, zooming through the roads in the tea plantation. Turns out, he knows someone in this one, deep, deep within it, and he takes me to their gaff, a shed-like place in the middle, completely unsignposted. I must add how vast these plantations are, fields upon fields of slightly rolling hills, all green with the low-lying shoots of the tea plant, and a few trees. There's no way I'd have reached here on foot in any reasonable time. Anyway, so, when we get there, he offers me a drink. That isn't tea. It's in one of those clear plastic cups that you find at office water dispensers, and the liquid inside is, well, it's water-like, certainly. Initial impressions were that it was smooth and tasted faintly of tea. Second impressions were a slightly roasted aftertaste, with the underlying realisation that you are probably burning off the lining of your throat with every sip. The more I drank, the worse the taste got. It turns out, of course, that this shed isn't quite what it seems. On the proviso that I didn't say where it was, or take any pictures inside, they opened the main corrugated iron door to reveal a whole still, with jars, bottles, pipes, all the works, a genuine illicit moonshine distillery in the middle of a Bangladeshi tea plantation. It was fascinating, though I did decline a second cup. Sometimes, though, finding alcohol in unlikely places doesn't require illegal stills or substances that could power a motor scooter. My old school friend Alistair here talks about his experiences of finding spirits in an even less expected destination. I visited Yemen uh, in 1997 and stayed there for one year studying Arabic in mostly living in Sana'a but traveling around the entire country. Yemen of course is situated at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula um, and you would have thought in a country like Arabia it would be unusual to come across alcohol and you'd be correct. Being a Muslim country alcohol was 
very, very much on the naughty step. Um, no alcohol, no alcohol was available in Yemen when we got there. Not legally anyway. Well, not for mass production or for the mass market. Um, because the only brewery in the Arabian Peninsula, Syrah in Aden or Aden, as we call it, was brewed in the Arabian Peninsula up until the early 90s when in 1994, during the civil war after reunification, uh, northern armies um, blew up the brewery. And uh, since then, of course, no beer has been brewed in the Arabian Peninsula at all. Now, this is not to say that beer was not available everywhere. There was a Chinese restaurant in Sana'a and another Chinese restaurant in uh, Aden or Aden, if you like, that's been there for since probably the British days. They would serve beer, as would um, a bar on Goldmahor Beach, um, and then Taj Sheba in Sana'a, and the Hotel Mervinpik in Aden. And they mostly served Tuborg for some reason best known to themselves. In terms of non-beer alcohol, though, which is where this is going, there were very few places, well, there were no places that was legally available apart from the bar of the Hotel Mervinpick in Aden, where one could buy beer, wine, cocktails. And uh, one could also see the curious sight of uh, ladies wandering in, wearing full hijab, full um, balto, full lifam over their face, and then emerging out of the toilets wearing something much slinkier. I suspect this may have been for some kind of financial gain. As students living in Sanar, we did not expect to find any alcohol when we arrived. And to be fair, we did not go looking for it either. But after a few weeks there, or maybe a month or two, um, one of our colleagues suggested we pop down to the English club, which was uh, run by expats, or as I prefer to call them, immigrants to Yemen. They would hang out in this weird bar um, that served no alcohol. It did only serve coffee and tea, but would go to would tell us about parties. So my first introduction to non-beer alcohol in Yemen was at a party run by the heads of the expat school, or the international school, as it should be known, um, which was kind of a curious affair. It involved lots of booze. It involved me actually realising that I could fit quite a lot of alcohol in the lining of my coat. We were also given a steak and kidney pie and almost a full crate of, you guessed it, Tuborg to take away, which resulted in some embarrassing moments when we tried to get kebabs at four in the morning and uh, made friends with a Yemeni police officer who we had to pay off with the outrageous fine of about a tenner between the 12 of us. Enough of our illegality. Um, one of the people we did meet at the expat club um well the, the british club um was was a woman called wendy who worked for a, a international charity and she was a lovely lady she um she had a son and we would go and babysit and now and again she would offer us vodka at the end of our babysitting and this involved this sort of raised some questions like wendy where the hell do you get your vodka from this is yemen i mean you can't just go down the shop and buy stolichnaya so she had the pleasure of introducing us to a booze dealer, which was a guy called uh, Jambo. He lived um, on one of the uh, one of the new streets on the outskirts of St. R. And we would go up there, um, wander into his house. Jambo's house was curious. Um, he had a large room with, instead of the usual Yemeni sort of mafraj arrangement, which is low cushions, 
and bolsters, which would encourage a sort of lazy leaning on your right arm, chewing gat all afternoon kind of repose. His room was rather more sort of chairs around the side in the manner of a French drawing room. On the wall was a was a rug, which I'm sure you may have seen before. Um, it features a rather famous picture of, of several dogs having a game of snooker. Um, to add to the incongruity, Jambo would be sat on a table in front of a large cabinet. Cabinet with two sides. On Jambo's right was the light side, and on the left was the dark side. To the light side would be any kind of clear booze, would be vodka, would be gin, and on the other side would be whiskey or brandy. Whiskey was a variable quality. It could be Bell's. Um, on one sad occasion, it was French whiskey, which I would recommend that you never, ever, ever try. Certainly not at $10 when it's smuggled into a dry country. However, the light side had much better pickings. You would have Gordon's Gin, but if you were lucky, and you were usually lucky, um, you'd be able to find good quality Russian vodka, usually Stolichnaya. And uh, this will be served up, wrapped in newspaper, Arabic newspaper, taken home in your pockets, and all for the princely sum of just un- of around a uh, thousand reals, which is just under ten dollars at the time. Now, some years later, I was in a bar in Liverpool with my uh, good friend Adam, who's a violin player, and his good friend, uh, a Czech chap who plays the accordion. Both excellent folk musicians and. Uh, Vlad used to work for the Soviet Merchant Navy. And during a conversation once, he, uh, we were discussing the alcohol in Yemen, which was smuggled in somehow from the coast around Mocha up to a place called Mafrak, which is where all of the dealings go on. If you want arms, if you want drugs, if you want alcohol, you go to Mafrak. It means it's a crossroads. Literally, name means crossroads. And Vlad was part of the Merchant Navy team that used to go to places like Greenland and uh, also to the Red Sea, where they would fling out bottles of Stolichnaya, whiskey, sometimes Bell, sometimes French, if you were unlucky, uh, Gordon's Gin, and other such delights to be picked up, ferreted in the middle of the night up to Mafrak, and then eventually dealt uh, stealthily to our good man Jambo. Alistair briefly refers to it in his tales, But if you want to know more about what the locals there call Yemeni whiskey, then head on over to my Patreon page, where I've uploaded a short extract where he talks a little more about a most interesting and strangely legal drug that makes alcohol literally seem like water. In general, though, what we can conclude from this is that where there are people, where there is money to be made, there is alcohol. And as is evidenced by history elsewhere, prohibition, of anything really, simply doesn't work. In the case of alcohol, it's either smuggled or homebrewed, both of which can be somewhat dangerous. Prohibition isn't just something that happens for religious or health reasons, though. One specific type of alcohol which garnered a bad enough reputation on its own to warrant a ban in many European countries is absinthe, though it's, as it's not a formally defined product, it's hard to know exactly what it is. Here's Hannah from HH Lifestyle Travel, who knows much more about it and who is a particular promoter of it. I am an absinthe connoisseur. I've travelled around the world looking for absinthe tasting absinthe from its birthplace in Cuvée in Switzerland and attending the absinthe festival every year. It's a much maligned drink and there is a lot of mystery around it and it's very much 
over-egged and to its detriment because actually absinthe is a long drink. You add cold, ice-cold water to it and it isn't supposed to be set on fire or shot out of a shot glass. So it is actually a long drink with complex flavours and a really interesting history. Uh, it was invented in 1792 by Dr. Pierre Ordinaire, as, as many things were created as tonics to begin with. So he used it as a treatment for his patients. It was sold multiple times after that and ended up in the hands of Henri-Louis Pernaud. Obviously, you've probably heard of Pernaud Fils, the distillery in Pontalier. And Pontalier, France, is just over the border from Cuvée in Switzerland. And in the 1800s, it was sort of the heyday of absinthe. There were 22 distilleries in Pontalier alone, and about 7 million litres produced a year. Uh, it was used in the Foreign Legion, probably as a tonic for the, for the poor soldiers as well. And then obviously, you will have heard about it in the Belle Epoque in France in the late 1800s where people like Van Gogh, Picasso, Baudelaire, Rimbaud, Verlaine made it quite famous because it was cheaper than wine. And by the end of uh, the 1800s, oh, over 20 million litres was being consumed in France alone. So that made absinthe quite the drink. But it also left it open to some scandals and perhaps the wine industry wasn't very happy with it either. And when in 1905, a man, Jean Lanfray, he killed his entire family after being out on the drink and he'd had some absinthe, some other alcohols, and he, he ended up killing his family. However, this was just a catalyst for the banning of, of absinthe, which came to Switzerland in 1910. However, when you, when you think about the strength of absinthe, that isn't actually as strong as people say. You'd have to drink 150 glasses of it to, <laughs> to have enough thujone in it to, to really make it a neurotoxin. Uh, anyway, it was banned in 1910 and, and wasn't made legal again in Switzerland until 2005, I think it was. So it was 95 years of prohibition but many people were still making it uh, as bootleg absence in Switzerland in that time. Um, it was never banned in the UK um, and in many places across Europe. The, the prohibition has very much been blown out of proportion. But I suggest you try it because it really is a most delightful drink. I'm personally in team Kate Frankie with this. I've had absinthe and perno. And I don't like them. They're not for me. Not because of any feeling about their strength or any of their mythical effects, but simply because I'm not fond of the taste. I hate aniseed, which is a strong flavour in them. One of my longest standing pen pals, by the way, Michelle from the south coast of England, has absinthe as her I am never touching that again because I got horrendously wasted on it in my youth and now the mere smell of it sends me retching. Drink. So there's that, too. But to each their own. And it's not the worst drink I've ever had, I guess. My research has also pulled out that absinthe is currently banned in Vanuatu. I guess they have their own problems. I talked about this in my earlier pod about Vanuatu, episode 5. Uh, but if you want to hear a couple more things about Carver, then again, head over to my Patreon. Ooh, bonus content. Illicit. Woo. Uh, and before I forget this point, I'd like to give a specific shout out to Kirsty Leanne, public speaker, LinkedIn expert and plus-size travel activist, who introduced me to that most student of drinks, the Jaeger bomb. 
A staple too of backpacker life, when we met up in Rotterdam for the Traverse 18 conference, she was amazed I'd never had one and made it her entire aim that night to make sure I didn't leave the bar before that was rectified. In case you've never come across one, a Jägerbomb is a most bizarre combination. You take a shot glass of Jägermeister, a German liqueur made up of lots of various herbs and spices, so itself has a unique and distinctive taste, and place that glass inside a larger glass filled with Red Bull, or some other energy drink. And then you drink it. Try not to spill any. If you can down it all in one, the better. As you drink, gravity makes the Jägermeister mix with the Red Bull in your mouth. It's... interesting. Red Bull tastes like... I've described it as tasting like purple, uh, so it's a bit like drinking an asexual pride flag. Actually, whisper it quietly, I thought it better than I imagined. Kirsty Leanne was actually pretty surprised I liked it that much. It's not something I'd have often, because me and Red Bull don't mix safely. More the safety of other people, although my heart probably can't cope with too much of it. Speaking of European adventures, in the autumn of 2019 I travelled around Europe on an interrail ticket. My reasoning was, while I still could, before I'd have more admin issues with regard to Brexit. Part of that time I spent travelling with my friend Lix. Now Lix is very fond of alcohol, specifically cocktails, and when they travel somewhere they do like to explore the local cocktail scene. So here's Lix talking about some cocktail experiences that they've had in Europe. Most of them, it must be said, with me. I may be a cheap date, but they certainly are not. I don't really travel looking for alcohol. I do like to experience the alcohol of the places I go to, but it's more of a like surprise kind of thing. Like, you know, when I was in Slovakia and they had like, I can't remember the name of it, but um, they called it Palinka in, uh, in Budapest. But in Slovakia, they have, they have a similar thing, but it's a little more terrible. And it's delicious, and it's just like a fruit liquor, and it's like fantastic. But then you have like really fun stuff. Like in Prague, I had the best espresso martini I've ever had, and also the worst because I went to a to a liquor bar, a cocktail bar, basically, and they didn't have the espresso martini on the menu. But I asked for it, and they were like, "Well, of course we have that. Of course we can do that. It's so basic," and it was fantastic. But then I asked at a very nearby uh, hotel cafe where I had an amazing dinner and they gave me basically a black Russian. They just did not put coffee liqueur in it. It was like the worst. I've also experienced something like that in Toulon in France. We went to a little uh, restaurant for breakfast and I asked for a Bloody Mary, which is a very common uh, breakfast item. And instead of giving me a boy, Mary, because I, I don't know if it's because they didn't have it, they didn't want to do it, or because I said I don't want it to be too spicy, but they gave me a deconstructed Bloody Mary. Basically, they gave me uh, tomato juice, some vodka, and then a bunch of like spices and stuff. And it was, it was actually pretty decent. It was not bad. I mean, I mean, I mixed it myself, so I knew what I was getting. It wasn't as good as the. The one I had in that one horrible, ugly bar in, um, it was Bratislava. The weird bar in Bratislava where it was like 80% vodka. And I was like, yeah, I am here for this. That was a really good Bloody Mary. To be fair, it was like 7 p.m. So it made sense that it was, you know, strong. <laughs> Something else I really loved in Slovakia was um, Violet liqueur. It wasn't, it's not something I've ever like encountered. But I mean, in general, I really like, I mean, if something I uh, 
seek out when I travel is cocktail bars, right? Because they have like interesting things and they mix up interesting things. And the violet liquor was like very common in Bratislava from my experience. And it was delicious. It was just wonderful. I love that kind of thing. I love like the taste of flowers in general in my alcohol. I also love like jazz bars and stuff. So like one of my favorite experiences with cocktails and alcohol in Europe was L'Archiduc in, uh, in Brussels. It was just a jazz bar and it was beautiful. It was, I mean, I love jazz. I love the whole speakeasy vibe. It was gorgeous. They had every cocktail you could possibly think of and then some, and it was just really nice. We went on a, I think it was a Tuesday, but it was like a weekday uh, at night. And we had like the entire upper floor for ourselves. So there was no music. There was no live music. But it was still very, very nice. And that's the sort of thing I sort of seek out. That and uh, Japanese food and Japanese restaurants. Just for the sake. Someone who knows that Japanese alcohol is more than just sake is Stephen from Stephen on the Move, who told us all about Japanese beer in my earlier podcast. Here he is now talking about Japanese spirits. In addition to beer... Uh, Japan has a lot of unique alcoholic options that uh, most people aren't familiar with. Yes, of course, everybody knows sake, rice wine, which actually, despite being called rice wine, its production process much more closely mirrors beer production than wine production. Uh, But in particular, there's a distilled spirit called shochu, which is actually also distilled typically from rice, sometimes from barley, sometimes from sweet potatoes, brown sugar, a variety of things, but most commonly rice. Uh, It has typically a slightly higher alcohol content than sake does. Uh, Shochu usually has a alcohol content at about 25% uh, by volume. And very rarely do you drink it by itself. Uh, Typically it is mixed with something else in most cases you see it uh, mixed with soda and typically some sort of flavoring so you will see uh, at convenience stores across japan you will see uh, packaged 350 milliliter cans or 500 milliliter cans of what's called chuhai which is the shochu highball and chuhai is that shochu liquor the soda, and then some sort of flavoring. Uh, Very commonly, lemon is popular. Uh, You also see grapefruit, apple, ume, which is typically a fermented sour plum uh, that is local to East Asia is another common thing. You can also get a chuhai at restaurants. That's a fairly common thing as well. In most cases there, it's not going to be a packaged chuhai. Instead, it will be some of the shochu in a glass over ice plus a small bottle or can of the soda and then fresh lemon or whatever the fruit might be typically lemon uh, that you will then squeeze onto it and then you can mix the soda in as you please as the consumer. Stephen and Licks there talking about trying alcohols mainly spirits that are local to a place. And I think that's a very important and interesting side to this. While obviously illicit moonshine is definitely local, hyper-local even, I'm talking more about things that are less likely to kill you. 
Stolichnaya vodka is, as we have seen, available pretty much everywhere. And while it might be a nicer ambience to have it in an elegant cocktail bar in Moscow, it will taste largely the same in a downbeat dive bar in Manchester. What makes things more interesting, and this doesn't just apply to alcohol but also to foodstuffs and even museums in a way, is to sample things that are either pretty much only available locally or regionally, or which are available worldwide, but having it locally means they're made properly with local ingredients, rather than being served just like any other drink. Like the way absinthe is these days often served in a shot glass rather than as a long drink. To that end, I've, for example, uh, in Uzbekistan, I was introduced to locally brewed Karakalpak vodka near the Aral Sea, which was smoother and much less potent than you might have imagined for an ex-Soviet middle-of-nowhere drink. While still vodka, it's of a brand and manufacture probably largely unavailable outside Central Asia. In Zemun, just outside Belgrade, I had some Serbian plum brandy, Slivovica, to wash down a fish soup with in a small restaurant in a shed on the banks of the River Sava. It was also quite smooth, but also a little smoky. Then in Finland, years and years ago, I was given a shot of the Finnish vodka-like drink Koskenkora Vina. If memory serves, it was a coffee variant that I had, and it was dark, purple almost, rather than the clear liquid that Koskenkora usually is. Although we were in a small club at the time, and a little tipsy. Then in Nashville, USA once, when I had the best part of a day as a stopover between greyhounds, I naturally had to go to a bar in the late afternoon and have a bourbon and cola, on ice, and watch some local bluegrass band perform live. Oddly, I slept pretty well on that couch that night. Maybe though that's what Arkansas does to you. And, of course, I've been to a few distilleries in Scotland in my time, where you can sample the whiskies on tap, as it were. Though, as you have heard earlier, my tasting notes on them are generally quite vague. All these different styles and flavours, and I can barely tell them apart. I suppose it really means I ought to keep drinking more of them and get used to it. One thing I will say, though, is that whisky is very much an acquired taste, or at least it is for me anyway. When I was younger, I never liked the taste at all. I found it too burny. But everyone in my parents' and grandparents' generations said, you'll grow into it. Normally, this is normative bullshit. Oh, you'll settle down someday. Uh, but in whisky's taste, it has been weirdly true. I know I prefer the single malts rather than the blended whiskies, which I find a little... boring? But unless one is very peaty or very smoky, I do find it hard to judge accurately how it tastes. I've talked about spirits a lot, and I'd just like to finish this style by mentioning another, and it too is local. A few years back, I spent just under two weeks in Chile, my only experience of South America, it's a place I keep meaning to revisit, but never quite get round to going as somewhere else always crops up instead. Anyway, one of the places I visit was the Elqui Valley near La Serena, about five hours north of Valparaiso on the Pan American Highway, one of the most boring roads in existence. It's a very quiet and beautiful place, famous for stargazing, horse trekking and UFOs apparently, although despite the clear skies and the alcohol, I never saw any of those. UFOs, I mean, I saw a lot of the sky. On my last night there, my last night in Chile, in fact, I went to one of the local restaurants in the village, La Terraza, I believe it was called. If so, it was an apt name as I sat on the upper floor open terrace above the town. Which is fine in the middle of summer, but I was there in midwinter, and even though it was a warm day, it chilled down quite a lot when the sun went down. Spectacular views of the Milky Way, though. Anyway, I had there a glass of Pisco. This is the local alcoholic spirit made from grapes, and by local I mean this one came from the Elki Valley itself. Pisco, of course, is the base for Pisco Sour, as mentioned earlier by Kate Frankie, 
and having tried standard Pisco, I can see why they do tend to serve it with lemon and lime as a sour. In my mind, it felt a little like... The nearest I could describe at the time was like a less specific cognac. So kind of the same feel, but a less a f- less direct and a less strong taste. Chile, of course, like also neighbouring Argentina, is famous for its wine. Rue, from Rue Loves Travel, did a wine tasting in Chile. So here she is to talk about it. A couple of years ago, I was in Chile, which of course meant an obligatory trip to a winery. I should mention at this stage that I'm not a big drinker and certainly not much of a wine enthusiast. However, I am always interested in learning how things are made, as well as meeting locals. Plus, it was warm and sunny, so I could easily be tempted into sitting outside with a glass in my hand. We were first walked around the grounds and could see rows upon rows of the various vines. We were then taken to a small area where they had planted one of each type for us to try. I was amazed how you could really taste the difference in each one and how familiar grapes like Chardonnay were so similar to the finished product. Which probably sounds silly, but I think I assume so much work went into making wine that it would taste so different to the original fruit. The guide then took us inside to show us all the different machines they use and steps they have to take. We also went down into the cellar to see the barrels, which made for some great photos. Then we went outside to taste a range of wines. It was a lovely day. Would I go again? Probably not, but I appreciate the skill that goes into the wine industry. And if I'm out buying wine now, I almost always buy a Chilean one. I've done wine tasting myself. A couple of years ago, me and my friend Vicky, Voyager Vicky, did a trip around some of the wineries of the Southern Ontario Niagara area in Canada. It being December, there weren't many other people there, so we had time to relax in each stop, chat to the owners, and in one place have some local cheese to go along with the wines for an afternoon snack. It was really interesting to see not just the lines of vines, similar to the lines of tea plants in Bangladesh in fact, but also then to go inside and see the large wine vats, barrels etc. And of course there were several styles of wine available, not just the standard white red rosé, but also things like sparkling wines and ice wine, where the wine is cultivated from grapes that are frozen on the vine. It's very popular in this part of the world. I remember going to a vineyard in Michigan many, many years ago and having some. And it tends to be very sweet, much more of a dessert wine, which suits my tastes. The trouble with ice wine is because it's a much more time dependent product and quite niche, it tends to be more expensive than normal wine. Current prices at one of the vineyards we went to, Pondview, have ice wine starting at 50 Canadian dollars, that's £28.30, for a 375ml bottle as compared with roughly 20 Canadian dollars, or £11.30, for an average white wine at presumably 750ml. Also, I was travelling with only hand luggage, so I didn't buy one to take home. So what have we learned from this episode? Alcohol is available everywhere, comes in many different forms, from frozen grapes to herbal concoctions, smooth whiskies at distilleries, to bottles that literally fell off the back of a ship. If you can distill it, if you can sell it, you can drink it, even if sometimes it's probably better not to inquire too hard about what and where it came from. Still, whatever they are, they taste better than tequila. Well, that's about all for this pod. Next time, on Thursday the 11th of March, the subject will be travels in snow, because by then hopefully pretty much no one will have any, and it'll all be nostalgic as opposed to terrifying. I'm giving you a release date for accountability and to try to reinforce that this is a fortnightly pod and will remain so for the foreseeable future. Honestly. Until then, watch what you're drinking and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Sheffield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, Bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group, travel.tales.beyond.brochure, and I also have a Patreon for access to rare extra content at patreon.com slash travel Pod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. <laughs>